So this is the second in three talks I'm doing about how we as a community are, we're not just like family, we actually are family. Uh, we, remember, the, remember the expression we were discussing last week? Some people would say uh, how, how, how thick blood is, meaning family ties are very strong ties. And I suggested that spirit is thicker than blood. So in a natural family, you have blood ties with each other and that's strong. But when we have the creator of the universe who has fathered us spiritually, who has begotten us into his family, that's a really strong tie. And that makes us brothers and sisters in Yeshua's family. And uh, we, uh, we looked at how the analogy that was used most often to describe the ecclesia or uh, communities of Yeshua's disciples was the family. Uh, there's a lot of talk about brothers and sisters. Uh, Yeshua used that analogy a couple times. So we're going to continue uh, looking at that today and breaking down some, some practical aspects of it. Um, I, I think you could, you could categorize these talks under uh, ecclesiology. Like, you know, the, the, uh, the Greek word for a community is ekklesia. So it's usually translated as church in most English Bibles. The Greek word is ekklesia. So talking about us as a community, what we are, how we function, how we gather, those kinds of things, those all kind of fall under the, the fancy term ecclesiology. So we're, we're having like a whole series of ecclesiological talks here. And uh, we're going we're gonna to continue with that today. Uh, last Shabbat, we talked about why family is so important in our world today. We talked about how there is a significant rise of, um, of, a, mo of a movement from people in the country to people in the city. Urbanization. Uh, the result often being families are broken up a little bit more. Many people don't have that, those same strong family ties. Also with the advent of transportation and larger corporate corporations, people often be transferred from one city to another. And just in general, you see families often split up a little more. You see more people without mums and dads, or grandpas and grandmas, or uncles or aunts, or brothers or sisters, that kind of thing. And um, we talked about how we as a community are often able to offer family on Yeshua's behalf to familyless people. Uh, I mentioned how there was that, uh, that uh, mixed martial arts academy here in Prince Albert cranked. And on their Facebook page, that was a big thing they offered. They said, this is our family, this is our home. And that, was really, that really appealed to a lot of younger guys. The guys that are least likely to go to church. Um, we also talked, uh, we, we, we listed six things that families do together and what that looks like for us as a community. What that could look like. We, we, uh, we listed eating together, uh, spending time together, showing each other affection, sharing work, sharing resources, and taking care of each other. So that was last Shabbat in a nutshell. And I wore my pajamas just to kind of as an illustration of family, you know. Because families see each other in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Families see each other in, in their suits when they get dressed up. Families see each other in their pajamas. And so that was hopefully a good illustration for you of that. Today, we are going to be looking at six questions about, okay, so we're family. What could that look like when we just break it down into some practical terms? So this morning, we're going to look at um, venue. How does functioning as a family affect where we gather? Um, group size. Is there like an optimal group size? Or is there a point where you kind of cap out if you want to have gatherings that really have that family atmosphere. Uh, how do we resolve conflict? Um, families inevitably will have conflict, fights, arguments, etc. 
as a faith community, we're going to have that too. What does that look like? Um, what we value in leaders and how we train a next generation of leaders. How, how does it work that we're a family? How do those two things connect? Um, how we understand our mission as an ecclesia community. And um, finally, what do we do with the kids? That's always a big question. In, in congregations. So we're going to look at some of those things today. I'm going to uh, read you several pages from a couple different books by authors in the, you could call it the organic or simple or house church movement. I'll just put in a little disclaimer right now. Uh, just because I read a couple pages here doesn't mean I endorse everything that every author writes, right? When I read a book, sometimes I will have um, dramatically different opinions in some areas, but I, I like to um, proverbially, you know, Take the meat and spit out the bones, keep the baby and throw out the bath water, that kind of thing. So we'll, we'll do some of that this morning and hopefully it'll just raise some good questions for us to discuss and, um, and think about. So the first thing I want to look at with you is venue. Functioning as a family. What's the, what are the best places to gather if we want to really communicate like we're a family of disciples of Yeshua? I want to read to you a, uh, a quote by Watchman Nee who of course was a, a famous leader in the Chinese Christian community um, before it went to communism and also after. He was imprisoned, I think he died in the 1970s in prison, but he really laid the groundwork for the Yeshua movement in China to not only survive but to flourish when the communists came in. Um, there was a big difference between Russia and China. When the communists took over Russia, the Christian community basically died because they, were, they depended on an institution, and without that institution, they just crumbled. They depended on trained clergy and some things like that, and it was very hard for them to get by without that. Yes, there were believers that survived in the underground movement in Russia, but they didn't do nearly as well as their brothers and sisters in China, where men like Watchmany kind of laid the groundwork for a movement to flourish even in times of persecution, even when they couldn't have trained clergy or uh, big seminaries or uh, huge buildings or those kinds of things. So I'll uh, begin by reading to you a, a quote by Watchman Nee on that. Watchman Nee says, God wants the intimacy of the upper room to mark the gatherings of his children, not the stiff formality of an imposing public edifice. That is why, in the word of God, we find his children meeting in the family atmosphere of a private home. So can, can you hear the prophetic, the prophetic edge that this man had? He was, he was preparing the Yeshua movement in China for this persecution that was coming, for the day when communism would crack down and they would not be allowed to have public edifices. I, I, like, I like how we keyed in on the upper room there, too. The early believers gathered in the upper room. That was like in the upstairs of a home, hey? So that's a, that's a quote from me. I'll also read you a couple of pages. This is a book called Reimagining Church, um, Pursuing the Dream of Organic Christianity by Frank Viola. He wrote another famous book called Pagan Christianity that he wrote in conjunction with a very famous statistician and researcher George Barna, where they basically went over most of the, uh, most of the uh, traditional Christian customs that you know, are, are known and loved in the, in the church and uh, tried to trace them to the roots. And you know, these are, these are, these are devout Christian men. They're not, you know, they, I wouldn't call them Hebrew roots or whatever, but they were still very open in saying, you know guys, a lot of the stuff that we do, we don't get it from the scriptures. We actually get it from 
<laughs> Pagan Origins. It's an interesting book. But anyway, this is another book of his. And I'll just read to you um, a page where he talks about, you could say like the, the home versus the basilica. Uh, Frank Viola says, um, he has a whole chapter here on the home as the gathering place for uh, communities of disciples. And uh, the, fourth, the, fourth area, uh, the fourth section here, he says, the home reflects the family nature of the church. There is a natural affinity between the home meeting and the family motif of the church that saturates Paul's writings. Because the home is the nat native environment of the family, it naturally furnishes the ecclesia with a familial atmosphere the very atmosphere that pervaded the life of the early Christians. In stark contrast, the artificial environment of the church building promotes an impersonal climate that inhibits intimacy and participation. The rigid formalism of the building runs contrary to the refreshing, unofficial air that the home meeting breathes. In addition, it's quite easy to get lost in a large building. Because of the spacious and remote nature of the Basilica Church, folks can easily get unnoticed, or worse, hide in their sins. But not so in a home. All our warts show there. <laughs> and rightly so. Everyone in the gathering is known, accepted, and encouraged. In this regard, the formal manner in which things are done in the Basilica Church tends to discourage the mutual intercourse and spontaneity that characterize the early Christian gatherings. Winston Churchill wisely said, First we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. It's a good quote, write that down. First we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Exegete the architecture of a typical church building and you'll quickly discover that it effectively teaches the church to be passive. The interior structure of the building is not designed for interpersonal communication, mutual ministry, or spiritual fellowship. Instead, it's designed for a rigid one-way communication, pulpit to pew, leader to congregation. In this way, the typical church edifice is unquestionably similar to a lecture hall or cinema. The congregation is carefully arranged in pews or chairs to see and hear the pastor or priest speak from the pulpit. The people are focused on a single point, the clergy leader and his pulpit. In liturgical churches, the table altar takes the place of the pulpit as the central point of reference. But in both cases, the building promotes a, central, a clergy centrality and dependence. But that's not all. The place where the pastor and staff are seated is normally elevated above the seating of the congregation. Such an arrangement also reinforces the unbiblical clergy-laity chasm. It also feeds the spectator mentality that afflicts most of the body of Christ today. By contrast, the early Christians conducted their meetings in the home to express the unique character of church life. They met in houses to encourage the family dimension of their worship, their fellowship, and their ministry. Home meetings naturally made the people of God feel that the church's interests were their interests. It fostered a sense of closeness between themselves and the church rather than distancing them from it. The situation today is very different. Most contemporary Christians attend church as remote spectators, not as active participants. In addition, home meetings provide a venue for God's people to demonstrate hospitality, a basic virtue of authentic church life. The host church meeting provided both the connectedness and deep-seated relationships that characterize the ecclesia. It furnished the Christians with a family-like atmosphere where true fellowship occurred shoulder-to-shoulder, face-to-face, and eyeball-to-eyeball, provided a climate that fostered open communication, spiritual cohesiveness, and unreserved communion, the necessary features for the full flourishing of the koinonia, or shared fellowship, of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
One thing I, I could just, I'll put a little plug in there. I think what he's saying is really good. I think at the same time, we remember the early believers gathered at the temple, which was a large edifice and an open public gathering, and where the apostles more or less led it, from what I can understand. And it says they also gathered in homes. Uh, we also have, for instance, in Ephesus, it says that Paul was teaching in this school. Uh, a guy named Tyrannus had a school. And it was probably more of an open public building. And Paul taught there on a daily basis. He was training people. And from there, the message went across that whole geographical region of Asia, right? So, you know, it's not like you can say this or that. But I can definitely see how if we only do one or the other, we may be missing something. That's something that I would conclude from this, right? So some people, they, would, they read books like this and they say, man, these, these house church people have a huge chip on their shoulder. They're really critical. You know, they're just... They're like, they're like the non-messianic version of church bashers. Maybe some people would say, right? And what I would say is, what I, what I see here is a, a desire to get back to being like the early church, a desire to do things scripturally, and a desire to do things in the way that's uh, best for loving each other. So anyway, um, just want to, you know, as, as I read a couple of things here, I want to kind of uh, read them in balance. And of course, you know, this is, a, this is just a typical Christian literature book, so you, of course you're not getting... We, we speak more Hebraic terms here, so just when you hear like English or Greek terms, just replace them with the Hebrew equivalents, right? It'll be a good, a good exercise for you in that regard. But, um, maybe after each one of these little sections, these little sections, I'll just stop, and if you have any thoughts or comments, you can make them. So let's first um, draw a picture of that, of that first one. What could we draw as a kind of a, a picture of those two, um, those two concepts? He's... Um, Viola used the word basilica. Let's just call it that for, um, for now. Maybe we can just draw like uh, maybe a, like a big cathedral versus a home. How about that? Hmm. Part of my, my family background is Russian-Ukrainian. I can't say I think I've ever gone to a Russian-Ukrainian Orthodox church, but I'll try drawing one of those just because they're really pretty. Actually, I heard there was a, is it a Ukrainian Orthodox church that sells pierogies once a month here? I can't wait to go to that. I'm going to go to that church for the pierogies. I guess, I guess it's on Friday, so that's a little different. But. Yeah. So do any of you have any thoughts or comments on this first, this first question of just functioning as a family? What, what, what works better to... To, to gather in a large, you know, building, like is it more traditional, or, or home-type gatherings. And there was also the synagogue element. You know, the early believers gathered in synagogues also, Saturday morning, and they heard the Torah read, and there was teaching, and just prayer, discussion, all of those things. Of course, synagogues then were smaller, and often based in people's homes, and they, um, remember those pictures I showed you of the synagogues in Masada and Capernaum? And they had their seating arrangement much like this, kind of an open square format. That's true, that's actually splitting up the family. Right. Or it could be viewed as that for sure. Actually, I, um, a, a good friend of mine was being baptized in, a, it's called like the Christian Congregation Churches, and I think they're out of Brazil originally. And they're really fervent when they pray and stuff. It was really cool. But they, they had all the men sit on one side and the women sit on the other. Oh, I was mad. Like I went in there, I was like, they're you're not going to split me up from my wife. Like, I want to sit with my wife. And I, I did put up with it for that one time, right? But, like, I had my hackles up because I, I don't want to be told I can't sit with my wife and my daughter. No, them's fighting words where I come from. But, um, I don't know. I don't, maybe it helped help them not get distracted when they were praying or something. I, I think you could probably say, 
in the early Yeshua communities that just like they had gatherings at the temple or other public facilities like the school of Tyrannus and gatherings in homes, they probably also had bigger gatherings and smaller gatherings in terms of the, the people involved. Um, you know, you even read in the, at the end of Paul's epistle or his letter to um, the Yeshua community in Rome, he says, greet so-and-so and the ecclesia that gathers in their house. Greet so-and-so and the ecclesia that gathers in their house. So right there, you can see in Rome, in this big city, there were, there were multiple ecclesias. There were, there were multiple communities, but they were all part of a bigger community, and uh, they were definitely a network. So that's the next thing I want to look at with you, group size. Remembering again that I think you could safely say they were both in the early Yeshua movement. And uh, I'll just read to you a... Uh, a page from a book by a man named Neil Cole. I actually, I just heard Neil Cole speak down at Austin, Texas, and I got to talk with him a bit, and I, uh, I really enjoyed that. But this is a book of his called Church 3.0. Um, it's a hard cover, so it did come with a slip cover, but I can't stand slip covers because they slip, and I end up trashing them. So I'm not going to like, yeah, see, can you see the, the cover of the book? It's very, uh, very meaningful. It'll tell you a whole lot about the book. So anyway, I'm not going to do that for any of the other books that I show you without slip covers. But um, I'll read to you, uh, read, read to you something of, that he says about this. And Neil Cole was involved, and in, he basically helped start a movement of, um, you, you could probably call them house churches, they're smaller groups that, like, really that really broke out and multiplied in California in a culture that is very not Christian. It's really interesting to read some of the stories that came out of um, uh, what, he, what it was and is involved with. Anyway, um, he's, he's listing some different size gatherings and pros and cons and where, where you would see them in the writings of Yeshua's apostles and also, um, also in, in um, the world today, like let's say in the business world or communities like the Hutterite community. And uh, anyway, he, um, has, he has something he writes here about the family unit of 12 to 15 people that I thought was meaningful. He says, even though it's not the best-sized group to make leadership decisions... He, he mentioned that Yeshua had an inner circle in which he made leadership decisions. Um, 12 to 15 is a much better size for caring for one another's needs. When one wants to maintain a level of intimacy and yet have enough diversity to be able to work effectively as a group, this is the best size. It's also often the size of an extended family, small enough that all parts can intimately know one another, yet large enough to have significant diversity and group dynamics. Across the world, house churches everywhere have 12 to 15 members. It's a natural size to operate as a spiritual family on mission together, whether you're Baptists, Calvinists, or terrorists. The weaker ones are cared for by the stronger in a setting that ensures all will get the care they need. You have enough diversity of strengths to make the whole better without too many people decreasing the effectiveness of the intimate family dynamic. That was his main point there. When you have that size, um, on a practical level, you can all fit in a living room. Um, it's the size of an extended family where, you know, you're actually able to, everyone's able to communicate, participate, care for each other, and you're not too big or small. Um, it's just a thought from him about that. Maybe I'll, I'll draw something to picture that, and then we can chat about that one too. What should I, what should I draw? Maybe I'll just draw a little circle of people. How, how would that sound? And I better finish drawing the spire here, too. Okay, there we are. So, hi, Tirza. You just love it when I draw, don't you? Yeah. Okay.
Okay, I'm not going to draw all, all 12 to 15, but this will be a picture of that, all right? All right. We're, we're 12 today, and with Teresa, we're 13? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we're the sizes as, as a community where we basically are still a small group. You know, so we know each other, we, we're pretty familiar with each other, we're able to care for each other. Um, I believe that Yeshua is going to give us more um, people in our community, um, people that we can disciple, etc. And at that point, this will be more of a question. You know, when we hit, let's say, 30, 40, 50, 60, that kind of thing, what do we do? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start losing something at that point. So, you know, that's, it's not so much a pressing question now, because we're a small group, basically. But what about the future? Something to hold in mind. Um, number three, how does functioning as a family affect how we resolve conflicts and or confront sin? And uh, Shaul has something for us along those lines. In his um, apostolic letter to Timothy, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So did you catch that? He basically said, relate to each other as family. So if there's an older man in your community, and of course, Timothy, you're a younger man, so you need to hear this. If there's an older man in your community and he's engaged in sin or in some kind of um, aberrant behavior or um, doctrine or whatever, don't sharply rebuke him. I, I, would, I would hear that, like, don't lay into the guy, you know, but um, appeal to, them, to him as a father. So like, talk to him kind of like how you talk to your dad, maybe. Um, he says the same thing for um, older women as moms, uh, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. So there is definitely that family analogy there. Yeah, did you notice that? Like in a family setting, there's, just, there's a certain way you resolve conflict because you're really secure in your relationship with that person. Like you know, you know we're family. Like that's a bond that can't be broken. And so you're able to relate on that level, confident that you have that strong bond. And I, I really appreciate how I, I felt that in this community with, with all of you too. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Or, or even like it says here, I'm just I'm thinking with you, like Paul says, you know, uh, address things like you would to a family member. So yeah. just saying, you know, I see you as a brother, yeah. or I see you as my mom, and, yeah. and that's the love I have for you. That's the, the secure relationship yeah. we have. Yeah. And then in that context, working through stuff, hey? Eh? Yeah. That's really good. No, that's really meaningful to me. Like, I'll, I'll share something with you on a more personal level. Like, I'm the kind of person where I, I really, I run on encouragement, and it's hard for me to function when I'm discouraged. I mean, some people, they don't care. Like, how they feel just doesn't matter, right? But for me, like, if I'm feeling encouraged, I, I'm really energized, and I, I, I can really get a lot done. But when I'm feeling down, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And so, like, something that Genevieve has learned about me is, you know, if, if, if we have to address something in our relationship, if I need to change in some area, if she just kind of jumps right in, I just crumple. I get discouraged, right, because of who I am. But if she begins by saying, you know, I love you, and this is what I appreciate about you, these are the positive things, then I can handle it, you know? And I mean, that's, that's just me, right? That's the story from my life. But I think that really applies. I'll draw a picture. Um, how about, um, I'll just draw a picture of like four people, like a mom and dad and a brother and a sister for that one. Well, there's the mom. There's the dad. And there's the, I'll just draw them right underneath. There's the brother and there's the sister. Great.
relating to each other like family like that. Um, fourthly, functioning as a family. What does that look like in terms of how we train leaders, train the next generation of leaders, and how, how, we, um, how we see people develop in their ability to lead Yeshua's communities by serving them? Um, that's, a, that's a big question. Here's something that, again, um, Yeshua's emissary, Shaul, wrote in his apostolic letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He's talking about men who are elders, and uh, elder is a word we don't use as often in our, in our world. We'll often more talk about seniors, or uh, maybe just about being old. And it's the same word, right? In, 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 in the Greek, it's the same idea. So the old men in your community, the, the seniors in your community, it says, um, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's ecclesia, God's community? So his main point here is, if a man can learn to serve his wife and love his wife, if a man can learn to prioritize his children and raising his children in Yahweh's ways and, um, and having a healthy family, if, if you see a man like that, you're guaranteed that he will, he'll be a trustworthy person to also serve Yeshua's community. There'll be something solid there. He has a track record that begins with his own family. So we can definitely, again, see that there's this very close connection between individual family units and serving those family units and us as a community of disciples and serving that community. So, you know, for me as, as a younger husband and father, something that tells me is my, my first priority is not Crown of Messiah. My first priority is my wife and my daughter. Because if I have, if I have, a, if I have an unhealthy marriage, or if I don't spend a lot of time with my daughter, and if I have a weak link with her, I have no right to be serving this community. I have things totally backwards. And, uh, you know, like my, my dad was a pastor and my grandpa was a pastor. So I've, I, I feel like I've seen sometimes what can happen when pastors begin to prioritize their, quote, ministry ahead of their families. And it's, 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 never, it's never good. It's never pretty. And I don't believe it ever brings glory to God when a pastor prioritizes his church or his ministry above his marriage and his family. So, and you guys, you know what? Seriously, like, keep me accountable on that one, okay? Like, seriously, brothers, like, if, if you feel like I am slacking off and serving my family first, just come and kick me in the butt, like, really hard. You know, like, just call me on the carpet for it because uh, I, I need that too. I do sometimes, you know? And uh, I, I've seen two extremes. Like, I mentioned the one extreme of, of men who prioritize serving their church or their ministry or whatever to the exclusion of, you know, prioritizing their families. I've also seen an extreme of men who basically hide behind their families. And men who have had a call from Yeshua to preach the gospel, to spend time serving their communities. Sometimes it takes stepping out of their comfort zone. And some men hide behind their families. They say, well, you know, I can't do that because uh, I, I want to make sure I put my marriage first. I want to make sure I put my relationship with my kids first. And the result is, is guys just don't do anything. And that's not healthy either. That's not healthy either. So, you know, there's the, there's the middle of the road approach. First Timothy five eight. Let's uh, look it up here. If anyone doesn't provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, his family, he's denied the faith 
and is worse than an unbeliever. Yeah, excellent verse. Basically saying a man is responsible to provide for his family. That's top priority. Yeah. Excellent. I, I wonder if sometimes that isn't like uh, underemphasized though, like in the believing community. You know, let's say you have a young man and he feels a call to preach. A, a young man who says, you know, I really feel like I need to just do stuff for the king full time. And, you know, very often he'll look at going to Bible college or seminary or whatever, and there is value in those things. But how many times do people, is he told, like, you know what, that's good? And so that means you need to focus on serving your family, you know, on, 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 being, on being the best husband you can be, the best father you can be. It's just, I don't know, I, I have to admit, I haven't encountered that a lot. I, I want to be countercultural in that regard. I want to get back to the word on that. And you know, um, some people abuse this verse. Some people, I mean, because you know what? Even the very best parents in the world, parents who pray for their children, they'll have children who walk away from God. They'll have children who live in sin. And it's not the parents' fault. You know, you can be the best, the best mom or dad in the world, and you'll still have times when children exercise their free will. So I think it's really important that this passage is never abused. You know, you never want to abuse this, uh, that kind of passage and, and look at someone and say, well, you know, one of your children isn't walking with God, so you can't be in any kind of leadership. No, that doesn't make sense, right? I would, I would look at that more as just a general, a general principle. How, what could we draw for that one? Um, training leaders through learning to put their families first. You guys got to help me here. I'm just drawing a bunch of people for all of these, except for the first one. <laughs> Community is people. Community is people. True that. Draw what? Okay, draw a man with uh, the Torah. Okay. Oh, that's a cool idea. Okay. Okay, so here's his uh, little kids sitting there. And there's the Torah. We'll, we'll even have a, a, a scroll because scrolls are cool. There we go. Okay. And, um, and then his community on the other side. I'll just, I'll just draw like a... There, that's that's the, their community building, we'll see. Oh, thank you. I love you too, Tirza. Okay. Cool. Uh, number five, how does the understanding that we're a family and how does us functioning as a family affect how we view mission? How we, um, what's our mission? You know, to proclaim the good news that Yeshua began, that's all about him and his kingdom, um, to make disciples. And I'm going to read to you a couple of pages from Neil Cole's book, actually a couple of his books. Um, going to read to you something really short from his book, Organic Church. You know, there's, a, there's this big question of like, often people want to define church, right? If you were going to like kind of sum up your definition of church, which would it be? And it's really hard to do that because the Bible doesn't do that. So people are left trying to weave all these verses together and get the main principles and whatever. And it's kind of interesting coming up with um, some of the definitions of church. I haven't really bothered because, you know, I, I think the scriptures are, are good enough. But here's, here's Neil Cole's definition. He says, In our organic church movement, we have come to understand church as this. The presence of Jesus among his people, called out as a spiritual family, to pursue his mission on this planet. Granted, this is quite broad, but I like a broad definition of church. The scriptures don't give a precise definition, so I'm not going to do what God hasn't done. 
I want something that captures what the scriptures say about the kingdom of God. In one of only two places where Jesus mentions church in the Gospels, he says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew 18.20 His presence must be an important element of church. So, what, what I like about um, Neil Cole's definition, and I'm not going to say we should adopt this, I'm just saying what I like about it is that it's all about Yeshua and his presence in the midst of his people. It's about his call, and it's about the mission. You cannot, you cannot separate um, us as a community what we are and our mission, what we are called to do. Your missiology precedes your ecclesiology. So what he would say is, it's not that the church has a mission, the mission has a church. You could look at it like that, like the creator of the universe is on a mission to this world to redeem fallen humanity, to bring everybody back to himself. And, when, and he calls us to join him in that mission. And that is, like when we, when we gather around him, then we automatically are also gathered around that mission, and we become part of that mission. So it's not so much that your ecclesiology, what you believe about what you are as a community, affects your missiology, it's the other way around. Your missiology will determine how you function as a community. So like on a practical level, that means a really big question for us will be, how do we reach our city for Yeshua? How do we best represent Him to our neighbors? How do we make disciples? You know, just the nuts and bolts of it. What works best? That's how we should do community. Right? It's not so much about, well, this would be the most idealistic way to do it, or this would be maybe truest to some parts of history, or, well, this is our tradition, and we have tradition. The, the pressing question is, how do we best accomplish the mission that Yeshua has given us? I, I, would, I, would, I would suggest that to you. I'll uh, read, read you another quote from, a, from another book of Neil Coles on that, on that subject, and we can uh, discuss it a little bit. In uh, Church, Church 3.0, <laughs> Neil Cole uh, says, um, people, find a mission, people find a mission that is larger than themselves compelling. They want to change the world. They don't respond in the same way to a church that's sedentary and waiting for the world to come to it. In most forms of church, we ask for volunteers all the time. We offer spiritual gift assessments to see where people fit best into our program, but we never really offer challenging experiences, handing out bulletins, directing traffic, wearing a bright orange vest, chaperoning a youth function, or changing a diaper in the nursery may be helpful for the church program, but none of them is a task worth giving your life to. Many who struggle to do these things have a nagging, unspoken question. Did Jesus come so I can do this? <laughs> we must transition from seeing church as a once-a-week worship event to an ongoing spiritual family on mission together. Then people will see church as something worth giving their lives for. Honestly, people need one another more than they need another inspiring message. You would be surprised what people will do for Jesus or for a brother or sister that they will not do for a vision statement or a capital-giving campaign. I've seen young people go to an unknown city at their own expense to spend a week there without any money, family, or friends waiting for them. With no reservations at a hotel and no reservations in their heart, they were willing to seek ways to bring God's kingdom to lost people, trusting completely in God to provide for them. Sleeping on park benches or in first-class hotels, depending on what doors God opens up for them. These young people rise to the occasion with guts and conviction. These same radicals would probably not want to hand out bulletins on Sunday morning or take a turn in the nursery. 
Why would they volunteer for something so radical? They want their lives to count for something. I firmly believe that we have so few volunteers because we ask so little of them. That really, that really grabs something in my heart too, eh? And I mean, this doesn't, I wouldn't say this, all of this applies to us because, you know, I've, I've explained to you in our community, I, I really have a philosophy of keeping, like staying as lean as we can so we don't have like a whack of ministries and programs and a big regime of things that need to be done, right? Um, the idea is, let's keep things really open so that you can hear Yeshua, so that you can pursue what you're passionate about, so that you can grow the projects that He gives you, and uh, we'll gather around you and we'll back you in that, right? So there's a lot of openness and freedom in our community for people to take initiative and to, to take stuff and run with it. So I mean, like, we don't have bulletins. Uh, we don't have people helping with parking. We don't have a lot of these things that are more necessary when you get to the megachurch stage, right? But I think it's still a really good point he has. Like, we can't see our community just as a once-a-week event or whatever. It's like, do we see ourselves as a family that's on mission together? Like, every day throughout the week. That, I, I, that, 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 that grabs my heart. Yeah. So how, how, could we, um, how could we draw, what could we draw for that one? To, uh, to picture that. Maybe just an arrow, hey? A family on mission together. We'll just draw an arrow saying we're, we're going somewhere and we have something to do together. So do you have, does anybody have any comments or, or questions on that, that fifth question of how does functioning as a family affect how we view our mission as a community? Cool. All right. Let's um, look at this last one, too. Um, we don't have a ton of kids in our community yet. So, again, this isn't a question that's come up as much yet, but it will. It'll come up. And uh, sixthly, I want to look at the big question of what do we do with the kids? And, I mean, this is a big question in, in churches, in uh, Messianic Jewish synagogues, in Hebrew roots groups that gather in homes, etc. Uh, what do we do with the kids? You know, some people would say, well, it's best to have a separate program for them, or Sunday school, it's more like age categorized. Uh, we, have these, we have these different ideas. And um, I'll just, I'll read to you a, a, couple, um, a couple pages from Neil Cole's book, Church 3.0, because he's been involved in a lot of, like, he'd call them orga organic church communities, usually kind of house church models. And... Um, He's seen a lot of things. He's had a lot of experience in areas that I haven't. And I think his, I think his thoughts are interesting and pretty valid. This is like reading day, hey? But I'm trying to, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of books lately and I want to kind of try and distill some of it and give you what I would view as particularly relevant or things that, I'm, that are getting me thinking. So Neil Cole says, um, Most churches and other institutions in the West seem to assume that adults and children must be segregated when it comes to teaching and learning. Apparently, grown-ups can't learn anything if their kids are present, and vice versa. All of us have been educated to group children by age and tailor the content and its delivery accordingly. We don't deviate from the curriculum, and as kids, we don't mix with children older or younger than ourselves. We don't typically question these assumptions, but I would argue that this is a very small-minded approach, one that is blind to other ways, perhaps even better means of education. We all can see easily from a cursory reading of the Bible that children are especially important to God. So, when he chose to place their nurture and development into the care of an institution, he didn't choose a school, but a family. 
From the beginning, it's clear that the best environment for the growth and development of children is a family setting. This is problematic in a world where the family as an institution is rapidly decaying. Schools have become more responsible for being the place where children grow and develop. According to Hillary Clinton, it no longer takes a family to raise a child, but an entire village. And by village, she means public community services, especially schools. <laughs> um, so I'll just keep reading the rest of this, this uh, section here. Dana, my wife, is a teacher on the front lines of education, serving the Los Angeles Unified School District and working in South Central LA. She can attest that children from broken families have a much more challenging road ahead of them in education than those who have a whole and healthy family. Our society tends to put the responsibility for the health of our children on the shoulders of our educators, but God doesn't. He chooses the family. Instead of following that choice, the church has followed society's lead in giving the spiritual development of our children over to the Sunday school teacher to an event that occurs once a week. Unlike the church in the New Testament, which uses the idea of family as the essence of what it was to be and do, churches become a religious event that takes place once a week rather than a spiritual family on a mission together. The entire experience of church for adults and children culminates with a teaching lesson. We even use school language, Sunday school and Christian education to describe what takes place. This model of church is understandable since those starting and leading churches are trained in academic institutions, schools. Church leaders wanting to know how to lead a church, attend seminary, and learn in a school context how a church should function. We produce what has been modeled for us, and we end up with a teaching institution instead of a spiritual family. The goal of an educational institution is to teach. This also appears to be the primary goal of most churches. We have so invested in this idea that we often equate knowledge with maturity. We must shift back to a New Testament understanding of church for the sake of our children and their parents. And he has another page here I'd like to read to you about the question of what do we do with the kids? Thought-provoking stuff. Actually, uh, I'll start by, I'll read you a kind of a, a funny story that he mentions here. He says um, one of his associates, uh, Paul Kak, remembers visiting a church in India that met in the open. They rolled out a rug and gathered on the rug to worship. Afterwards, the kids were running around as kids will do, and one happened to run across the rug. A church elder grabbed the child by the arm and scolded him for running in church. <laughs> we, um, we do allow the sacredness of religiosity to invade our minds in some rather peculiar ways, if for no other reason, simply being reminded that church is to be a family rather than a religious ceremony is a positive reason to include children in the life and experience of church gatherings. That's a good point right there. You know, if, if, if you're emphasizing we are a family and not a religious event, Having kids around would definitely underscore that. It's especially challenging to include children, however, when you have some young children with parents who are less than responsible themselves and don't know how to train their children. My own church is full of people who came to Christ from marginal backgrounds of drug addiction, suicide attempts, gang violence, and various sexual addictions. So I do know what it is like to have immature and themselves poorly parented people with small children. Nevertheless, I cannot remember a time when the children were an interruption in nine years at this church, which began in the home of a drug dealer. The reason that kids are not an interruption for us is simple. There's nothing to interrupt. Oh, don't get me wrong, we do have a, le a learning time discussing God's word, but it isn't a monologue by a gifted teacher that demands silence and respect. Instead, it's a community learning time that involves the entire family, including the children, so there's no such thing as interrupting it. 
If you think of church as a family rather than a religious, weekly religious event, you begin to see differently the whole idea of what it should be. Children do not interrupt family because children are family. I <laughs> like that. <laughs> you can imagine your kids interrupting your family. They are the family. Um, family learns from one another, and that includes other parents. In an organic church, young parents who are raised with poor role, role models can learn how to parent children well, but not if we separate the family according to age-appropriate educational groupings. It takes a lot for a young couple to admit they do not know how to raise their children in a healthy manner, so they will likely not ask for help unless they've actually seen parents who appear to know what they're doing. The earlier in their children's lives they encounter such role models, the better. I like that. You know, we, we, we live in an era where I think there's an increasing number of parents who don't know how to parent their kids. And if you come to your community and families are split up and no parenting happens in that context, those parents will never be mentored in how to parent. But if your gatherings are more based on family units and the kids are involved, you know, parents who need some mentoring will look at other parents and be like, they kind of look like, like they know what they're doing. I'm going to go and ask them about that, you know. Um, I'll just read another paragraph here to finish this. There are moments, although not too many, in our church context where a mum or dad will pick up a small child and go outside for a couple of minutes. Occasionally, I may even take someone else's child out to read a storybook while mum and dad stay and participate in the group learning. We allow kids to go out back and shoot baskets if they want to. Often children draw pictures while we discuss the scriptures. They're kids, and they act like kids. We should expect nothing else. For us to view church as a spiritual family, we must include children in the mix and allow them to be kids. I personally believe that the familial interactions in church are a more potent way to change lives than listening to a sermon once a week. I know this may cut against the grain, especially for the pastors who spend so much time and energy developing important sermons. But consider this. If you were to list all the passages that refer to teaching the word to Christians and compare them to the passages that admonish us to love and serve one another, you would find the latter far outweighing the former. Of course we need to teach one another, but the best form of learning involves putting the lesson into practice, and an organic church context is far better suited to this type of learning. It's also true that the children often teach the adults. In fact, as many will tell you, there were numerous times when my own small kids were the mature ones in the room. That is really more a reflection on the hurting people we were reaching than on our parenting skills. If we allow our children to carry some of the responsibility of church life, then they will learn and share in the church experience. Our churches will be better both now and in the future as these children grow up and take on leadership as adults. And then he has some practical ideas. They're pretty good. We can talk more about those another time. But um, those, are, those are some thoughts from a guy that's actually done you know, house church formats, who's been around the block, who has had like, what did he mention? People like ex-gangsters and drug dealers and sex addicts and all kinds of people in a living room and uh, people with very, very poor parenting skills. And he said, because we look at our, the way we do community as family, kids can't interrupt that because they're part of the family. I love that. Um, um, what could we draw to picture that? And then if you have any thoughts. I keep losing my markers. Where do I put those things? I already lost. Okay, here they are. I found them both. Um, <laughs> what, what could we draw to picture that last one? Maybe just a living room with Big people and little people in it. How about that? Okay. Oh, man. That means I have to try and draw a couch. Okay, we're going to draw a couch. Here we go. Oh, yeah. Okay. My tears, don't laugh at me. I'm trying to draw a couch. Okay. 
So there's um there's a big person sitting there. And there's a little person. Yeah, that's you, Terzi. See? And um we'll, we'll draw another coach here. Oh bad, that was bad. Okay, and um so here's another big person sitting there. And a little person sitting there. And uh Summer, summer in tears of coloring, you said? Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. There's Summer wearing a funny dress. And there's some highlights in her hair, because you got highlights today, right, Summer? And um, here's, a, here's a book, and here's a marker. And here's tears over here with the book, too. All right, so yeah, we can, we can use that as a picture, just of people gathering, big people and little people, learning together, and not viewing the little people as an interruption, letting them be kids, and maybe even learning a couple things from them. So do you have any, any thoughts or comments or questions on that last question of what do we do with the kids? And again, you know, we're a smaller community. We don't have as many kids, but we will. And I want to be prepared for some of these things. Yeah, a, a friend of ours here in Prince Albert, uh, Dave Bonney, who recently started doing the house church thing with his family, he said, there's no junior Holy Spirit. Everybody gets the same Holy Spirit. doesn't matter if you're 5 or 50. It's, it's, it's notable how the Jewish community initiates young men and women, eh? Like, you know, when a young woman hits 12 and when a young man hits 13, you know, for the girl, the women come and say, you're one of us now. You are a woman and we regard you as a responsible individual in our community. You know, when a, when a young guy who turns 13, the men come and say, you're one of us now. We look at you as a mature man. And yeah, you know, you have some growing to do and you're going to have learning but you're one of us and you're re responsible for yourself and your own obedience to God. That's powerful for someone at that age to be told that, eh? Rather than just kind of growing up and I don't really know who I am and I don't, I'm a teenager, but what does that mean? And I don't know when the transition is to be me, me being a man. So you end up with guys who are in their, you know, their 20s and 30s who are still selfish boys and who have never been initiated into being like men who are there for their families and their, and their communities. And I, I think that's sad. And like, like I, I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, the epidemic. Like, it is a major problem of young people growing up in evangelical churches, and then when they go off to college or university, they fall away from God and they quit going to church and they never come back. Often, like, it's an epidemic. I think it's something like about half of young people who grew up in an evangelical church will walk away from it. That's a lot. And I, like, I, I've really, I've really wrestled with that. I, I've asked why. And I wonder, like sometimes I do wonder if it isn't because from the very beginning we say you're not one of us. So we will send you to your own age category and then eventually you have you know, youth group. And I mean, I was part of a youth group and it was a good social experience, you know. But sometimes I, I wonder if we don't segregate too much and we say you're not one of us, you're not part of this adult community. And then eventually they become adults in their teens and it's like I was never told that I belong. Why would I stay? I don't know. You know, it's uh, some of the things that we're talking about for me are kind of theoretical. It's more things I've read about, scriptures that I've looked at, other people's experiences that I've heard. You know, but I, I think it's things that are really worth considering too. Shalom. I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.